It is so hard to believe that this marks the 43rd message in our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesian believers. And as we near the end of this book, we have been walking very slowly and carefully through the last uh, few verses in Ephesians 6 and our study in the armor of God. This is the fourth message on the armor of God. Lord willing, we will finish that in the next few weeks. As we consider the armor, I'm sure that you would agree with me that there is great need for training. There's a statement that I lifted from the United States Armed Forces uh, several years ago, and it reads as follows. Training is the Army's top priority. It prepares us to fight. As leaders, our sacred sacred responsibility is to ensure that no soldier ever dies in combat because that soldier was not properly trained. It was Confucius who uttered these words. He said, to lead an untrained people to war is to throw them away. I'm afraid that that's what many people do in the Christian life. When speaking of churches, as we, we send students to the university untrained, we send Christians out into the marketplace of ideas, out into the, the, the battlefield untrained. And so we as a church family want to take it very seriously, this notion of training. As we've considered the importance of training for a physical soldier, the same would hold true then for For us in the Christian life, unfortunately, as I've already argued, there are many Christians who are not properly trained. They are not properly equipped to enter the battlefield. And the reason that Christian soldiers are in jeopardy is because they are not properly equipped. They have failed to take up the full armor of God. That has been the focus of our thoughts over the last several weeks. Therefore, there is a need for ongoing training. It was General Eisenhower, and many of you will recognize this photograph of of Ike. General Eisenhower said, from now on, I'm going to make it a fixed rule that no unit from the time it reaches this theater until this war is won will ever stop training. That would be something that would apply very much to you and I as we consider the Christian life. There is never a time when we cease our training. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how mature you are in the Christian faith. The training continues. Now, Paul the Apostle gives us a very interesting idea of what this training looks like. And I want to take a bit of a detour this morning before we come to the helmet of salvation. And I want to have you hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 6 and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and read with me verses 6 and 7 and think about this theme of training for Christian soldiers. Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7. Paul says, "Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." 
Really, there are four components that I see emerging in this training program that Paul sets forth. The first is found in verse 6. He tells us to walk in Him. That is, walk in Christ. And that word that is translated walk is a word that we are very familiar with by this time. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 4. We have seen it years ago in Galatians chapter 5. It comes from the Greek word peripateo. And it speaks of how Christians conduct their lives. Yes, the way we live really matters. That same word is is found throughout the pages of the New Testament. Paul in Romans chapter 6 verse 4 instructs believers to walk or live in newness of life. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, he tells us to walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then in Ephesians 4.1, we looked at this several months ago, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. And so if we are to be Christian soldiers who are properly trained and properly equipped, we must walk in Christ. We, we live for the glory of God. But there's something else in this training program that surfaces in verse 7. Paul says that we are to get firmly rooted. Firmly rooted. This comes from a term that means to, to render firm or to cause something to be grounded. I can't remember if I have shared this story before, but when we lived in LaGrande, there was a city ordinance. Uh, mo- most of you probably aren't aware that LaGrande is the city of trees. That's their claim to fame. And so in the neighborhood that we lived in, the, the ordinance was you had to plant two trees in your yard. Anyone that knows anything about me knows that 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 is the last thing that I'm interested in doing is planting trees. Well, because it was an ordinance, I decided to go out at the prompting of my wife, of course, and we bought a couple of trees. And then it was my responsibility to plant the trees. And I I have to confess that even though it's not the first thing I want to do in my life, planting trees, is I actually enjoyed it. It was just kind of kind of refreshing to to dig the hole and to put the tree in and my wife was coaching me all along the way how much water to put in and then you put the dirt back over the roots and the trees would eventually begin to grow and those trees became my friends i think because i i started to see them grow and uh, I, i was so excited about the growth of these trees i would take photographs throughout the week. And I wanted to see how, how much they would grow. Well, as you know, in Legrand, there's a lot of wind and there are some storms. And one day I came home after a storm, I came home from the church and my trees were toast. And they were toast because the, the roots were not mature and the roots were not settled deeply into the soil. And the same holds true in our Christian lives is Scripture calls us to get firmly rooted. We don't want to be like those trees who are, who are blown around by the storms of life. And thinking about Ephesians chapter 4, Paul warns us that we ought not to be believers who are blown by every wind of doctrine and teaching. Rather, we are to be firmly rooted. Firmly rooted. 
It was John Calvin who said, For as a tree that has struck its roots deep enough has enough support for withstanding the assaults of the winds and storms. So if anyone is deeply and thoroughly fixed in Christ as in a firm root, he cannot be thrown down from his upright position by any machinations of Satan. I love that. If anyone has not fixed his roots in Christ, he will be carried about with every wind of doctrine as a tree without the support is blown down at the first blast. Just like my trees were blown down. In the city of Legrand, we must get firmly rooted. Paul continues, however, in verse 7, and he says there's another aspect to this training plan. We must not only walk in him and get firmly rooted, we must get built up. You can see that in verse 7. That phrase built up comes from a Greek term that means to finish the structure of which the foundation has already been laid. Here's what it means. It, gives, it means to give constant attention to Christian doctrine. It means to give constant attention to Christian theology. That is why one of the emphasis you will hear from this pulpit and throughout our classes, whether it's in children's ministries or youth ministry or adult ministry, iron men, women's ministry, you name it, there is an emphasis on theology. At Christ Fellowship, it is, it is so vitally important that we emphasize doctrine, that we get built up, that we give constant and ongoing attention to developing Christian knowledge. There's a fourth thing that surfaces also in verse 7. Paul says we must become established in the faith. That is to say, we must be made firm. We must be confirmed. We must make sure. And all these things come together to, to provide this training model for a New Testament Christian. This is what it looks like. We become rooted built up and established in sound doctrine. But then notice how Paul describes the walk of such a soldier or such a person. Look at verse 5, Colossians 2, 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see what? Your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. It is the firmness of our faith in Christ that attracted my attention to this verse. And it is incumbent upon us that you and I have have faith that is deeply grounded, that is firm, that is rooted in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Taking up the whole armor has been our chief concern for the past several weeks as we have labored very hard. As we have labored faithfully over Paul's charge to the Ephesian believers, today we come, as I've already indicated, to the helmet of salvation. And of course, the helmet, if you can imagine strapping on that helmet, the helmet protects the the most vulnerable part of our bodies. It protects our minds. It is critical for you and I to, to recognize how very important the mind is. One writer says this about the vulnerability of the mind. He says, the flesh plies deceit to knock out the watchman of your soul. That is your mind. 
The mind, this writer says, is a sentinel commanded to watch carefully over the soul by the questioning, assessing, and making judgments. The mind says this, will this please God? Is this according to God's word? If the mind determines that an action is right, the affections or the heart should then fall in line and desire, long for, and cling to that which the mind said was good and the affections longed for. When each does its job well, you obey God from the heart. You see, the mind assesses, the mind discerns, the mind makes judgments. It informs the affections, it informs the heart. Now know that the enemy, the arch enemy of our souls, his name is the devil. The devil understands the importance of the mind in the Christian life. Therefore, the devil will target the mind. Have you seen this in our culture? Where the devil targets the mind? Did you know the, 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 the devil loves to target the minds of young people? He loves to target the minds of single moms. He loves to target the minds of fathers. He loves to target the minds of, of those who are working hard in their communities. He targets the minds of anyone he can wrap his claws or sink his claws into. And so because of this vulnerability of the mind, I believe it's important as we move into this section on the helmet of salvation, we need to ask, what is it exactly that this helmet protects? Of course, it is the mind. And so I want to take a minute and take another detour and define the mind for us. There are three very specific Greek words that surface in the New Testament. These are not words that you need to remember, but I I think you'll find it interesting. The first Greek word is the word nous, N-O-U-S, transliterated in the English. And it simply means mind or understanding. The word nous points to our intellect. It points to our understanding. It's also reason in the more narrow sense. Nous is the word that describes our capacity for discerning spiritual truth. It's where Good is loved and where evil is hated. There are three verses that I want to uh, show you where this verse or this word surfaces. The first is in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your what? Your noose, your mind, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Ephesians 4, 17, a few verses previous, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Philippians 4, 7, Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard or literally umpire your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so you see why this word becomes crucially important in the Christian life. It is the noose that is targeted by Satan. 
It is the noose that that Satan aims for. And we saw in Ephesians 4, verses that are only a few verses from one another, where we're either renewed in the spirit of our minds, or as the pagans we see, they walk in the futility of their minds. There's another word I want you to see. It's the Greek word phroneo. Phroneo. And it's translated... Uh, in, in a few ways, but primarily it's translated as to think, or it is literally translated as mind. Look, if you would, in Colossians chapter 3. And the reason I want you to turn here is because I believe it's the second Sunday in November. We are going to, Lord willing, start a new study on heaven. And I am excited for it. I was sharing with my Veritas class this morning that I was in Seattle all by myself on Friday on my day off. Doreen went to see Abby. Nathan was at school. And I took a walk. It's one of my favorite things to do these days is I took a walk around Green Lake. And I will share in our study on heaven uh, an experience I had that was, and it's going to sound like I'm joking, but I'm not joking. It was like a foretaste of heaven. And I, I had my, my earbuds in, I had my, my walking shoes on, and I'm, I'm walking past all these people, and I, I found myself smiling from ear to ear. I must have been the goofiest looking guy at the lake that day. Just walking, smiling. I'm... And I'll tell you more about that later. The foretaste of heaven. Here's what Colossians chapter 3 says, and we will look at this when we begin our study on heaven. If then, and this provides the rationale for our study, if you have been raised with Christ, or literally since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are what? That are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth earth and so that becomes one of the rationales you see for our study on heaven we are to set our minds on our time that we will spend forever and ever and ever in heaven how many of you are looking forward to going to heaven it was that walk at green lake i'm even more excited about heaven now and I'll tell you, some of you are just dying. You know, like, what in the world happened? You're going to have to wait. Paul uses the same word, phroneo, in Philippians 3, 19 and 20. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds, phroneo, set on earthly things. So these, these people are doing exactly the opposite of what Scripture commands us to do in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The final word I want you to see is a word that's kind of fun to say. It's the word lagizomai. Which, let's just say it together on three. One, two, three. Lagizomai. That wasn't very good. Uh, one, one more time. One, two, three. Wow, isn't that fun? Lagizomai. Lagizomai is translated as think or reckon, or count, or it's even translated as reason. Here's Lagizomai in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, you know this very well. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Lagizomai, 
on these things. Think upon these things. It was Tony Evans that said the the mind is the key to our entire being, which is why the great challenge for us today is to develop a kingdom mentality, a way of thinking that is in concert with the kingdom of which we have become a part. This morning, I found myself in our class missing R.C. Sproul, and I found myself just randomly quoting him none of those quotes the class were in my notes i just i kept thinking about these quotes from rc sproul and another one surfaces this morning is i i heard dr sproul say many times that we live in the most anti-intellectual period in all of church history and i believe he's exactly right and on target tony evans says the mind is the key to our entire being. Yet sometimes in the Christian life we have we have downplayed the mind. We have minimized the mind. We have marginalized the mind. We must not do so. For the enemy seeks to distract your mind. The enemy seeks to deceive your mind. He is a master of, of discouraging the mind. His aim is to, to always distort the truth. I remember when I was a young pastor, I sat down with my uncle who still pastors in Portland, and he gave me a book called the the uh, the the Christian Mind by Harry Blameyers, and he knew how to motivate his nephew because he said this is a little bit of a challenging book to read. He said real men actually read it. So I thought, well, so I read it twice. <laughs> which I'm not sure what that makes me, but there is something that Blameyers helps us with. He says this, the mind of man must be one for God. Therefore, it is crucial in light of Blameyers' words that we put on the helmet of salvation. Look at it with me in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And we only have time this morning to to cover half of this verse. Paul says, take the helmet of salvation. As we look closely at the helmet of salvation this morning, I want to have you look at four very important headings that will help us to understand the importance of what it means to take the helmet of salvation. The first is what I would refer to as a summons to action. The helmet of salvation is a summons to action. Notice the word take. That word take means to to literally or physically take or accept something. It means to, to take hold. And, of course, what we take hold of is the helmet of salvation. This is an action word. This is a bold word. And, of course, you know... As Paul had his mind set on the Roman soldier who was likely in the cell with him or outside the cell. The Roman soldier, as you know, would never think about entering the battlefield without a helmet on. Paul has already described the rest of the armor, the the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith. But the soldier can have all that armor on. And if he marches onto the battlefield without his helmet, he's a, he's a sitting duck. 
And so the helmet in ancient days was essentially a, a, a hat that was made of leather and reinforced with pieces of steel. It was securely fastened to protect the most vulnerable part of the human body, that is the head or the mind. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, as soldiers of the cross, we are called upon, in verse 17, to take, to take the helmet of salvation. That is, we are called to to strap it on. We are called to put it on, to take it, which is yet another indication that we are prepared, as we've seen in the past several weeks, we are prepared to fight. And so the helmet of salvation is not only a summons to action, but we will see it as a source of protection. So we make that, that commitment to strap on the helmet of salvation. It is a summons to action, but it is also a source of protection. You ask, what does the helmet of salvation protect us from? There are many things. I want to focus on three for our purposes this morning. First, the helmet of salvation protects us from false ideas. If I were to ask how many of you have heard a false idea this week, it would probably make our collective heads spin. There are false ideas on television, false ideas in books and magazines, false ideas in movies. There are false ideas that we hear from our friends. The helmet of salvation is designed to protect us from false ideas. One of the great heroes of the 20th century was a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen. Machen said this, false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. Some of you have shared the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with your friends and your unconverted friends simply won't hear it. We learned today in Veritas, one of the reasons is 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural mind is, is blind to the truth of the gospel. But another reason that the unconverted person can't hear the truth of the gospel is because they have been literally infiltrated. They have been literally bombarded with false ideas. A helmet of salvation not only protects us from false ideas, it protects us from false gospels. And I, I'm sure you would agree that false gospels are everywhere. There's the gospel of humanism. There's the gospel of hedonism. There is the, this is a hot one, and this is a controversial one. It's the, the social justice gospel. I can tell you that I have posted several things on Facebook over the last several weeks on the so-called social justice gospel, and have posted a few things that John MacArthur has said, and, and you would not believe some of the things that people say to me. Just, just ripping just just upset. How could you say anything negative about the social justice gospel? There is the gospel of works-based righteousness that we are very familiar with. You see, the, the false gospels are everywhere in our culture. And unfortunately, all of these false gospels that I have just surveyed are found in the church. We see the false gospels surfacing in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul the Apostle, you got to love him. He didn't have any time for false gospels. And he was quick to point out that these false gospels would ruin and damage the church. Here's what he said in Galatians chapter 1. He said, 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And notice what he says. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. He says, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be anathema. As you know, the word gospel simply means good news. And these false gospels that we have looked at are the very opposite of what passes for good news. And in the final analysis, each of these false gospels are actually damning gospels. They look good. They smell good. They appeal to your flesh. They appeal to yourself, your sense of accomplishment. But Proverbs chapter 16 warns us that there is a way that seems right to a man. And in the end, they lead to death. And so the helmet of salvation protects us from false ideas and false gospels. There's something else it protects us from. And this is something that we desperately need, especially in America. It protects us from false teachers. If you want to know where to find false teachers, just turn on the radio. If you want to know where the false teachers are, just turn on your television set. Paul told Timothy about two men who made shipwreck of their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he alerted Timothy about the characteristics of these false teachers. If you're looking for a a resume for a false teacher, here's what Paul says. These are men who are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions, 1 Timothy 6, 4. And here's the phrase, and I can't remember what the arena was or the context was that I made reference to these words that Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy 6, 5. He says that they have depraved minds and are deprived of the truth. I can't think of anything worse, can you? To have a depraved mind and be deprived of the truth. That is a recipe for destruction. Paul warns Timothy about a man who is peddling a false gospel in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said this, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So think about this. In the first century, the Apostle Paul had had all these people, some of them associates, who were peddling a false gospel. And he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And here's the phrase that just just grabs me. He says, so I was rescued from the mouth of of the lion. How could this be? How could it be that God strengthened Paul with all these false teachers surrounding him? How could it be that that he was rescued from the very mouth of the lion? I believe the answer is the apostle Paul had strapped on the helmet of salvation. He calls you and I to do the same. 
Notice third, the source of power. And if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 12, I want to review the source of power that surfaces in Scripture. Know this, the key to tapping into this power is a transformed mind. A transformed mind. Read it with me in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a, it's a verse you know very well. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Young people, I want to I address you, junior hires and high school students and college students. I want you to think like the Apostle Paul shows up to Christ Fellowship, and he comes walking in with his sandals and his toga. Awesome. And he had just penned these words and he wanted to refresh your memory. And he said, young people, do not be conformed to this world. Can you imagine the the weightiness of having Paul walk in and and name you and say, say, Brenna, it's so good to see you, by the way. And Kirk, it's so good to see you. Do not be conformed to the world. Would that grab you? For me, that would have a massive amount of weight. Like, I need to listen to Paul. But he goes on. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That word transformed in verse 2 means to, to change into another form. Many of you grew up and attended a science class or had a science book where you learned about that crazy looking thing called the caterpillar. And that very weird, hairy, gross creature goes through a process that we know as metamorphosis and turns into this beautiful, beyond belief butterfly. That's the word that Paul uses here. It's the word metamorphosize, that we're changed into another form. And so I want to look with you at the what I call the, the Pauline progression for a transformed mind. If I've convinced the young people, if I've convinced the rest of you that the mind is critical, that we must have transformed minds, our minds must be metamorphosized, how do we do it? There's four things that surface in these two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. First, we are called upon to recognize God's mercy. Recognize God's mercy. Think about this. God has extended mercy to us when we don't deserve it. Someone will ask me today, Pastor Dave, how are you doing? Edith, how will I respond to that question? Better than I deserve. Do you know that I have responded that way in coffee shops with someone that I didn't even know? How you doing, sir? Better than I deserve. Oh, no, you deserve an awful lot. Do you know I've been told that in local churches? 
Brother, how you doing? Better than I deserve. I don't really like the sound of that. You deserve to go to heaven. You deserve grace. You deserve God. You deserve gifts. You deserve ice cream cones, whatever it is. Can we just settle this one right out of the chutes? I don't deserve. This is the theological word for it. Squat. I don't deserve squat. And here's what's better. Neither do you. Neither do you. We don't deserve anything. And so when God extends his mercy, when we don't deserve it, it leads us to do what we did a few moments ago. Worship. We say with the songwriter from the UK, thank you for saving me. What can I say? Our response to the mercy of God should be one of thanks and it should result in holy living. Thank you, God, for giving me mercy I deserve. Now I live for you. That's the first step in Pauline, the Pauline progression for a transformed mind. But there's a second step. We must realize the necessity of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Paul tells us this sacrifice needs to be holy and pleasing to God. The result, again, is an act of worship. Number three, we refuse to conform, as I was challenging the young people, or as the Apostle Paul was challenging the young people, we refuse to conform to the pattern of the world. That little word conform means to conform oneself, that is, your mind and your character, to another pattern, in this case, the world. Or as Paul says in Colossians 2, the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Number four, we are to renew our noose. We are to renew our minds, which results in transformation. Renewing your mind involves a complete renovation, a complete change for the better. It's like my wife watches these fix, fix it house shows. What, what's that called? The fixer upper thingy, thingy dingy. I think that's what it's called. And so these these people will go into a house and they'll they'll find out what the couple wants and then they send the couple to Connecticut or something like that and three months later they come back and they, they roll out the big thing and they go oh, they cry, they can't believe it, it's our house, it doesn't even look like our house. What happened? Total renewal. Total transformation, a total change for the better. That's like a portrait of the Christian life. We are called to renew our minds, which results in transformation, which leads to a new kind of lifestyle. We've seen the summons to action. We've seen the source of protection. We've seen the source of power. I want to have you for just a moment do something I don't say very often. But I want to have you take your pen or your pencil and put it down and just listen and just meditate on these amazing realities as we look at the support of truth, the support of truth. Many of you are in a situation where you may not have your helmet of salvation securely fastened on your head and your mind, your life has been open game as a result. And you have perhaps forgotten what is true about you. That's where the support of truth helps. That's what the, the helmet of salvation does for us. Since I am in Christ, by the grace of God, I have been justified, completely forgiven. And by the way, I've had conversations 
over the last 27 years with a whole lot of people. And many of those people have told me something like this. Pastor, I understand that God forgave me, but I'm just trying to learn how to forgive myself. And I know that some of you here are saying the same thing, that you're trying to learn how to forgive yourself. And I want you to think about it with a little different twist. If you can forgive yourself, if that's possible, then here's what that means. It means you don't need a savior. It means that you are the one who who gave yourself on the cross so that you might be forgiven. And so you can see the the, the crazy looks on, on literally dozens of people's faces when I said, my friend, my brother, my sister, not only can you not forgive yourself, not only is it not possible to forgive yourself, if you think you can forgive yourself, You might feel better, but you just committed a grievous act of idolatry. Because there's only one person that can forgive you. And his name is Jesus. I have been justified, completely forgiven of all my sins. Since I am in Christ, by the grace of God, I died with Christ and died to the power of sin's rule over my life. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Since I am in Christ, by the grace of God, I am free from condemnation. You have to love Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see what the helmet of salvation is doing? It's not only informing us and educating us, it's allowing the truth of Scripture to wash over our mind, to serve as a support of truth. Since I am in Christ, by the grace of God, I have Christ because of God's sovereign decision. I have been given the mind of Christ. I have been bought with a price. I am not my own. I am God's possession. 2 Corinthians one twenty one says, I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I have died. I no longer live for myself, but for him, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. I have been, and this 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, I have been declared righteous. Now, if I asked you how many of you are righteous, don't raise your hand. Because you're not righteous, and neither am I. However, you have been declared righteous. This is the mighty doctrine of justification by faith alone that Luther said it's the article upon which the church stands or falls. You compromise justification, you abandon the Christian faith. I have been declared righteous. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I was predestined to be adopted as a son. I have been redeemed, forgiven, and lavished with grace, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. I have been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit which guarantees my inheritance in heaven. I have been made alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 5. I have so many more. We have to stop somewhere. I have been raised up with Christ. I have been saved and called according to God's doing. 
Titus 3, 5 says, I have been born and renewed by the Holy Spirit, all because of grace, all because of Jesus. And you see, when we strap on the helmet of salvation, we begin to think like this. And so when the accuser of the brethren says, you couldn't possibly be a follower of Christ, you just had a filthy thought. You couldn't possibly be a Christian because you just did, you fill in the blank. And your response is, with my helmet of salvation on, I know I am complete in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. God has proclaimed me righteous. We see a summons to salvation, a source of protection, a source of power, and a support of truth. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the the helmet of salvation is an absolutely essential piece of armor. We ignore it at our peril. We ignore it at our peril. And so we strap it on each day as we walk onto the battlefield and the marketplace of ideas. If you are not yet a Christian, my simple plea to you today is this, is today is the day of salvation. That none of the things I just described are true of you at this very moment. And so your call is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That means you, you turn to Jesus and you thank him for dying for your sins on the cross. You turn from your sins and you turn to Christ. And then all those things that we just reviewed become true of you because of simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, if, when you preach the gospel, you don't get accused of being a heretic from time to time. You're probably not preaching the simple gospel. Doesn't it sound so simple? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There's got to be something else I have to do. There's, can, can, can I pay something? Can I do something? Can I do some community service? Can I earn this? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. May we as the people of God here in this place commit ourselves to wearing the whole armor of God and remember to strap on the helmet of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the challenge. Thanks for the encouragement. God, I pray that you would help us to, to never minimize the importance, the priority of the mind. God, help us to remember that our enemy seeks to deceive our minds and distort the truth in our minds to discourage our minds i pray that we would have the helmet of salvation securely fastened so that our minds would be protected so that our minds would be guarded thank you for the great joy of living for jesus thank you for these pieces of armor that all point us to christ thank you that we are complete in christ and so father may we March confidently onto this battlefield, wearing the complete armor of God so that, so that the Lord Jesus Christ will be proclaimed with boldness and effectiveness and great power here in our community. First in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.